0: While I didn't know what we were about to embark on, I knew that it was going to be a roller coaster. And I knew that it was going to require of me to be something more than I probably had known myself to be in my life. So it just took on the approach of, I want to use and be present to this experience as fully as I can be, no matter the outcome. So that in the future, if there's an opportunity to do something, to say something, to share something that could make a difference for someone else, that I'll be able to do that.
1: Welcome to Difficult Conversations, lessons I learned as an ICU physician with Dr. Anthony Orsini. Dr. Orsini is a practicing physician and president and CEO of the Orsini Web. As a frequent keynote speaker and author, Dr. Orsini has been training healthcare professionals and business leaders how to navigate through the most difficult dialogues. Each week, you will hear inspiring interviews with experts in their field who tell their story and provide practical advice on how to effectively communicate. Whether you are a doctor faced with giving a patient bad news, a business leader who wants to get the most out of his or her team members, or someone who just wants to learn to communicate better, This is the podcast for you.
2: Well, welcome to another episode of Difficult Conversations, Lessons I Learned as an ICU Physician. This is Dr. Anthony Orsini, and I'll be your host again this week. Being a neonatologist, I'm exposed to a world that fortunately only a small percentage of parents have to endure. Statistically, about 10% of all babies born in the U.S. will need to be cared for in a neonatal intensive care unit. And for those parents of these very sick babies, their plans of having a healthy baby that they can take home with them in a few days are shattered. Although the majority of the babies admitted to the NICU do well, sadly, some do not. Many have long hospital stays with a series of good days, followed by bad days, and sadly, some of them do not make it. These parents find themselves members of a group that no one wants to be in, and nothing can prepare them for the long journey they must face. That is why I am so happy to have as my guest today two members of an incredible organization called the Grams Foundation. Graham's Foundation's mission is to support, comfort, inform, and guide families who experience a premature birth. They collaborate with the healthcare community and parents of preemies to improve the well-being of preterm babies and families. First, we have Nick Hall with us. He is the founder of Graham's Foundation. Nicholas has had many titles over the years, but the one he is most proud of being is the dad of Reese and Graham. Named after his son who was born at just 25 weeks gestation, Graham died after just 45 days. It was Nick's vision and desire to start the Graham's Foundation so that no parent goes through the experience of prematurity alone. We also have the pleasure of having with us Laura Platt-Kilstein, who is a micropreemy parent member of Graham's Foundation. Her son was born at 26 weeks in January of 2017, and he is now a super high energy four-year-old. She became a parent mentor in January of 2019. She was drawn to volunteering to offer premature parents the support that she had desperately wanted when she was going through the experience. Welcome, Nick and Laura. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today.
0: Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for giving us the opportunity.
2: So I'm really happy that the universe brought us together through a mutual friend and contact. And many people, as I said in the introduction, really don't know what it's like to be in the world of neonatology. I live it every day. You've lived through it. And so the more that we can educate people about this, I think the better it is. And also, I want to tell people from the top of a mountain about Graham's Foundation and how wonderful it is. So I think it's probably just best to start out, if you will. Nick, I really want to hear your story and have you share with the audience your story of Reese and Graham and and Mm -hmm. how you started the uh, Foundation. I think that's a great way to start.
0: Thanks, Dr. Orsini. I remember Jennifer and I had a brief tour of labor and delivery and we did a quick walk-by of the neonatal intensive care unit. It was kind of a standard tour for expecting parents. And we were a high-risk pregnancy having gone through in vitro fertilization to become pregnant and having twins. So we had some awareness of the potential risks, but this was probably only a couple of weeks before our world was turned upside down. So looking back, I think there's so much, and we were first-time parents, there's so much that you're concerned about and worried about. And I think if you spent too much time talking about the risks of premature birth and what that could mean, it would probably scare a lot of parents away from ever wanting to become a parent. Looking back, I'm not surprised that they did a quick walk by at the NICU and didn't spend too much time, fortunately, looking inside. But needless to say, within a couple of weeks, Jennifer was put on bed rest of what we hoped for would be several weeks of bed rest, but turned out to be only not much more than a week, having gone in and out of labor and delivery a couple of times for being watched. But then the, the last admittance only lasted three or four days. And I remember... The advice was, whatever you can do, try and avoid having your twins be delivered on either the weekend or a holiday. So sure enough, Thanksgiving Day 2006, the attending doctor said the risk to Jennifer is significant. We know the risks for Reese and Graham, but the risks to Jennifer are significant as well. So she had been through the magnesium sulfate drip and all the horrors of that. And there was really nothing more they felt that they could do to give Jennifer and her twins uh, a chance. So that day, you get emergency C-section, 25 weeks, three days gestation. As my memory serves, and you can imagine they were just a little bit over pound each. And I'll never forget as we were Going from the delivery room to the neonatal intensive care unit where they would both be intubated, the look on the neonatologist's face. And I did not know what was going on, but I could tell that it was serious based on the look on her face. And so that was kind of my first experience in the neonatal intensive care unit.
2: Why don't we ask Laura to just tell us the beginning of her story with her premature birth and then we could kind of talk about the stay and some of the conversations that you had during this day. Yeah. And of course, we want to talk about Graham. So,
3: Yes. Uh, thank you. So uh, this was my first pregnancy. I had gone through IVF with my husband. I was considered maternally old or whatever they, whatever they, they consider that. But there hadn't been any specific sign that there was a problem or like, any risk with the pregnancy. And honestly, I didn't know that I had gone into labor. I was actually at home and my water broke, but I hadn't yet taken the birthing class to tell me what that was supposed to be like. And I'd already had a little bit of the like pregnancy-related incontinency issue. So I just thought that's what that was. And it just didn't stop, but it was like 10 o'clock at night. And I was like, I don't know what this is. So instead of calling the doctor, I was like, well, I think it's probably just the other stuff that I was having. And I went to bed. When I woke up in the morning, there was blood. So then I was like, okay, there's obviously something going on here. I called my doctor and the doctor, it was on a weekend. And the doctor was like, you need to get to the hospital now. And I still didn't know why, because I wasn't having any contractions or I didn't feel any labor. I got to the hospital. My doctor met me at the labor delivery and they hooked up the monitors and she's like, you're in labor and your water broke. And because your water broke, we really can't do anything. If it doesn't advance, we'll just keep you in the hospital. It advanced rather quickly. They didn't really tell me what was going on other than they moved me to a different room and said, you're in labor. We don't know how long you're going to be in labor, but you're in active labor. And they had a nurse from the NICU come into the room and say, your baby will be born early. So he'll be taken to the NICU. But the hospital that I was at had a NICU, but they didn't have a high enough NICU. So they brought in the neonatologist, and they said that once the baby was delivered and stabilized, they were going to send it to a different hospital. So my son was delivered at nine o'clock at night, January 15th. And I didn't even get to see him. They had a whole bunch of people around him and intubated him and everything and then took him away and then still sitting there not knowing exactly what was going on they came back in when the the ambulance was coming to transfer him and i was allowed to see him in one of the like the incubator type of things and they left and then my husband left and followed the ambulance to the other hospital it wasn't that far away but my mom stayed with me and everybody that was there just left and i had no idea what was going on until the next day and there were so many things racing through my head because you know, it was 26 weeks. So I knew that it was not right to be born that early, but I didn't know what that meant.
2: So at that point in your life, as I heard a social worker say, and really I love the way you put this, both of your lives were redefined that day. And you went from expectant parents to parents of extremely low birth weight infants with all that kind of whirlwind going. And sadly for Laura, didn't even get to stay with her baby. And that's always very difficult. So as Nick and I talked about, and many people know from the audience that I've been teaching a program called Breaking Bad News for the last 10 years. And we've done thousands of doctors and workshops and something that most people don't realize that doctors don't have any training in. So the first bad news that you heard among many, I guess we could start with Laura was you're going to have this baby. So do you recall that conversation? What did you feel about that conversation? And do you remember anything?
3: Yeah, I do. I remember so many minor little details. I just remember my husband and I were in the labor and delivery room, hooked up the monitor, and my doctor came up to me and she was had tears in her eyes. And she's like, you're going to have this baby. And I remember being hysterical. No, I can't, no. And then I just sort of, you know, as well, I guess I have to do this. And I kind of almost felt like something else was was happening to me, but I wasn't there. I was sort of going through the motions until it came time to actually deliver and push. And then I started panicking again. I suppose if somebody maybe had explained a little bit like what was going on or what was going to be the process or what to expect, that probably would have helped a little bit. But I mean, I know my doctor, it just just happened that I went into labor when my own personal doctor was on call from the OB-GYN group and she was crying she looked scared. And so that didn't make me feel comforted, but I also felt like at least like she was in this with me.
2: That's really important that you said that. And after interviewing hundreds of parents about the time that they heard the bad news and patients, this is a common theme, the appreciation that you have that your doctor had a tear in her eye or was crying and that she was really in the moment with you. We had a A guest, one of the early guests on this podcast, Noelle Moore. Noelle Moore lost a child shortly after birth, and she now runs a project that's one of our sponsors called the Findlay Project, which helps mothers who've lost babies. It's an amazing organization like yours. But Noelle Moore still describes really to the very smallest detail about a teardrop that fell from her doctor's eye that landed on his beige khaki pants. And she remembers the exact spot. And so that's just the, the power of communication that I think. So, Nick, how about you? All of a sudden, this conversation, one of the things we say in this podcast is that every critical moment of your life starts with a difficult conversation. And certainly that would apply.
0: Yeah. For me, Jennifer was quite ill for several days. And so I was the interface almost exclusively. With the doctors, both with as it relates to Jennifer, but also with Reese and Graham. And I don't remember specific, there were so many conversations. I don't remember the specificity of the conversations, but I do remember the energy. I'm very much a kinesthetic. I know that's how I communicate very much feeling and and emotions. And so I can remember the emotion of the neonatologist as our twins were transported to the NICU. It was, Similar, maybe uh, sadness or upset as Laura spoke, but it didn't leave me with a feeling of hope. So Mm -hmm. it was a feeling of this is bad. That's what I was left with. This is not good. And then as I think about transitioning into the NICU after the twins were intubated and i guess had their you know the term i've forgotten it but the you know the first 20 twenty—the golden hour
2: golden, golden hour
0: yeah right everything's great everything's fantastic for those
2: of you who don't know the golden hour is a, a timeline that neonatologists use for the very sick premature babies and studies have shown that if we can get them intubated and stabilized and put all their lines in within the first hour that their outcomes are a little bit better so yeah, yeah so there's a lot of rushing and as a neonatologist i have to Balance that soft-spoken time with the parents, with the fact that I know that this clock Mm -hmm. is ticking. Like
0: we gotta take, we gotta take action, and we can explain what we're, you know, as best we can later. So I just, I do remember there were over time that there were certain neonatologists that I would have a conversation with if we had to talk about sort of give me the hard facts, give me the details, and then not that every neonatologist didn't have the capacity for that, but then there were some where. Clearly, if we wanted to have a softer conversation and more emotive and more, what should we do? And we're thinking about the process, the journey. And there's a particular neonatologist that we really leaned on for those conversations. And the same thing with the nurses. We found some were very emotive and some were more technical. And over time, I knew which one I wanted to put a new line in if and when that was necessary, if I had my choice or my option. So part of it for me was not expecting every doctor and nurse to have the same skill sets. It's a team approach. And over time, recognizing that and understanding that and being able to know, have, a, have an idea, have a sense of maybe who to talk to or who to approach, depending on what we needed to, needed to talk about.
2: So now they're admitted, you're within the golden hour, Laura doesn't have her baby with her in the same hospital. That's got to make it even harder. And then we start this long journey. Nick, let's start with you. Yeah. So there's this 45-day journey of Graham. So tell us about Graham and what happened at the yeah. end, 44th and 45th day.
0: Well, we quickly learned a lot of details, right? So Graham was baby B, so he was, I guess... Sucking off the fumes of Reese, if you will, within the womb. And so while they were born minutes apart, they were not developmentally minutes apart. You could just tell Graham was smaller, was less mature. And of course, you learn statistics over time that Graham was male, of course, and he was a Caucasian, and his lungs were not as well developed. And so you just you need to catch some breaks. And he just didn't catch any of the breaks that you need to. was never really successful at breathing on his own, his uh, intubation. It it came out for some reason after maybe 35 days or so, decided to give it a go. Maybe there was a reason why. And he had, it was like, he had a good maybe 12 hours, 24 hours, and then quickly went, kind of went downhill from there. And the last probably was several days, it it probably was longer than several days, It, it, but he was the concern every day doing the blood gas. At the end, they were throwing everything, but the kitchen sink, it felt like in the final days, we knew that, I think we felt that if he were to somehow eventually be able to survive given the trauma that he had to endure, that things that we could see physically and just kind of understanding that the ability for him to have any quality of life was really no longer, no longer viable. And we had time to think about it. I had a chance to talk to another parent. I had to make the same decision. And we just, we knew it was. We knew it was the right decision and the best decision for Graham.
2: Of course, still, after all these years, you can hear Nick's voice and how emotional he is. And that's a decision that no parent should ever have to make. It's a decision that, as a neonatologist, I've been involved with more often than I'd like to say. But one thing I can say universally is that. These difficult decisions that parents have to make are always done out of love. And that's a universal thing that I have seen. And I can see that Nick still struggles with it, but that it's also was one of love. So I'm so sorry, Nick, that you had to go through that. And while you gather yourself, I want to talk about how you turned that into the Grams Foundation and turned this tragedy into it. Laura, your son fortunately did well, it sounds like, but I'm sure, as I say to all my patients, it's two steps forward and one step back. So there must have been some incredible bad days and good days. How long was he in the hospital?
3: So Joshua was in the hospital for 99 days.
2: 90, he got out before the 100th day, huh? Yeah,
3: yeah. He <laughs> so, It was like a week, almost the day of when his due date was. So obviously, I didn't get to see him until. I was discharged from the hospital. So it was like two full days before I got to see him. And initially, for like the first very few days, like everything seemed to be going okay. They actually extubated him. And then the doctors and nurses kind of said that some creamies run out of the gate really like great. And then, you know, after about a week or so, things start to go downhill or the complications arise. And of course, that's what happened. He went into kidney failure. They, explained to us about the PDA and the issue about it not closing, but because he was in kidney failure, they couldn't try to even attempt to close it medically, but they were going to have to do it by surgery. So he had PDA ligation, I think at like 29 weeks, 28 or 29 weeks. And it just seemed crazy that a baby that was not, it was barely like two pounds was going to have actual surgery. And the surgeon that did it was like, he kind of made it, like light of it, because like, this is so routine for me. I could do this with one hand tied behind my back and with my eyes closed. And my husband was like, "Huh?" He's like, "Oh, just kidding. I won't do that." So it was, it was, I guess, an attempt at humor that didn't necessarily go over well.
2: I was going to say, how'd that make you feel when he did that?
3: So to me, I was like, "Okay, well, if this is so routine, then this is no big deal." My husband did not take it that way. My husband—that made my husband more nervous. But once they did the pay allegation, it was. Amazing. The first time we got to see him afterwards, like his color had changed. He was yeah. pink as opposed to like the grayish pallor of being sickly. It took another week or two for like his kidney function to go back to normal. So then we, my husband and I, were okay, this, this is okay. And then they hit you with the retinopathy of prematurity. And
2: That's a, a retinal disease of newborns and premature babies.
3: So they just said, oh, well, there's going to be a retinologist, ophthalmologist going to come through and they come in every so often and check all the babies and they came in. And of course, they said, well, he has some ROP because he's on oxygen. So that was one of those things that they had to monitor and eventually corrected itself by the time he was like two years old. So we were all fortunate about that. And then... He got to what they like the graduate phase from the micro premium room to the regular NICU room, and they moved him there. And that was kind of like a culture shock to my husband and I because in the micro premium room they were keeping the lights low, everyone was talking quietly, the monitors were turned down. They were just sort of trying to recreate that the womb type of environment and cluster care and everything. And then we got into the like I call it the adult NICU room, and it was <laughs> a shock because. There were so many babies, the lights were bright, there was more noise and it got to be really difficult because we would see lots of babies come in and leave and we were still there and we were still there and we were still there and we were still there. The other like hiccups that we had is he went home on an NG tube and we tried to transition him to a bottle feed around like 33 weeks and he wasn't doing it. For whatever reason, the speech therapist was like, we're just going to wait till he's discharged to do anything. And when that news came, my husband and I were like in full panic mode because what would that be like? How are we going to do that? And I would say credit the nurses were really good with us practicing on dummies, practicing with our baby, basically being our cheerleaders. And like, you were going to be able to do this. And if the line comes out, you're going to be able to put it back in and you're going to be able to do this you guys can do so much. You don't realize how much you can do. It'll be fine. It'll be fine. And I guarantee that if the nurses hadn't taken literally days and days of simply telling us over and over that you can do this, it's okay. It's not the end of the world. I don't know that uh, things would have gone as smoothly when he was discharged.
2: Communication is so important and it has to be effective and compassionate. And now he's doing well, right? He's How old is he now? Four?
3: He's four. Um, More,
2: so.
3: Yeah, from a physical standpoint, he doesn't have any residuals. He's a little smaller than kids his age. But my husband and I aren't real tall to begin with, so <laughs> our pediatrician was like, "Maybe he got a little shorter end of the stick, but you know, he wasn't going to be a giant anyway." That's but yeah, we're very fortunate, and we've been told. By any doctors that ever see him, different eye doctors that we've gone to, we've been going to see a kidney doctor for him just to keep an eye on everything. And everybody says that like it's a miracle that he is where he is today. And I 100% credit the NICU doctors and the nurses that took care of him because they're like, for him to have been born so early and have grown out of every issue that came up because he was a preemie is just amazing.
2: It's a true blessing. So Nick, back to you. And I want to thank you for really sharing the emotion with the audience. It's an unimaginable feeling that almost no one has. And so thank you for sharing. I know this is not easy for you, but I do want to move on to that experience. Reese did well, correct? Reese is doing okay?
0: Yeah, she's doing okay. It was a journey. It was... 119 days. So a, a bit past her due date. We were home for a couple of weeks. She developed what we thought was hydrocephalus. That was the case. So she needed an emergency shot. The journey did continue as parents of premature babies discover that graduating from the NICU to home on the one, it, it is a celebration and then all the responsibility is yours. And you don't have doctors and nurses at your bedside to answer. All all of
2: a sudden, you don't have this monitor monitoring your baby. Like, I always thought it was kind of odd. The hospital will not let you come off the monitor until the baby's discharged. But then one parent said to me, can I take my baby off the monitor? It was like three hours before discharge where the lawyers and the legal people won't let us do that. She goes, yeah, but in about three and a half hours, I'm going to be at home. Yeah. And I, I I thought that was kind of odd. So let's talk about that. Sadly, Graham passes and uh, there's that incredible moment with you and your wife and the sadness that goes along with that still happening. What made you then at what point say, I'm going to start this foundation? And what was your thought about the Graham's foundation? And when did you start it? In
0: some respects, I started it the moment Reese and Graham were born. And that's because I was aware that everybody wants to have a great story of it was a miracle. They made it through. Aren't we fortunate? Aren't we lucky? And I know that not every story ends that way. While I didn't know what we were about to embark on, I knew that it was going to be a roller coaster. And I knew that it was going to require of me to be something more than I probably had known myself to be In my life. So it was, it just took on the approach of, I want to use and be present to this experience as fully as I can be, no matter the outcome, so that in the future, if there's an opportunity to do something, to say something, to share something that could make a difference for someone else, that I'll be able to do that.
2: Because there's really nothing out there for parents of premature babies. Like I said, it's a small group of people. I had a patient once that wrote a photo journal book called Catching Meteorites about the journey of a premature baby. And she wrote it because she said, there's nothing out there to help me and there's nothing to prepare me for this experience. I'd like to ask you a question, Nick, because it's something that I've always wondered. What are the special circumstances about being the father? And I'll tell you why I ask that. I always tell during my classes and workshops, especially during the death and dying, that many fathers have shared with me the contrast between trying to grieve but feeling a responsibility to help the mom, your wife, get through that. And many times I'll tell the nurses to make sure we don't ignore the father. Everyone's around the mother and she's holding and the father sometimes stands in the background just out of curiosity do you feel that it's a special circumstances for the father or different i should say not special
0: you know i may have had a bit of a different experience myself personally but and that is because i was there every day i was able mm-hmm. to through fortunately my employer my manager my team they were totally on board and supporting me. And I was doing a lot of the communication with friends and family in terms of sharing, I guess it wasn't Facebook updates, blog updates, I think back 15 years ago, but I was there every day. I was at the bedside along with Jennifer and I was communicating right alongside when there were grand rounds, et cetera. So I think we had very much a team approach. And so I always felt included because I was also there and being a part of it. That being said, I was certainly an anomaly when I looked around and I think a similar probably experience to Laura of a room of maybe a dozen micro and I typically was the only father that was there for such an extended period of time. So more
2: and many times, the fathers have to go to work. And if somebody has to go to work, they don't get the time off. Right. It's a difficult situation. Yeah, Yeah. totally.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, there's all sorts of other <laughs> things we could go into about leave and things of that nature and why it's just difficult for both parents. But typically, oftentimes, especially the father, because the mother is, and rightly so the closest connection physically to that baby or babies. And so I think fathers routinely, it's like we are the ones that are responsible for doing things or fixing things or logistics and the kind of thing that, frankly, if your baby is a patient in the NICU, there's really not a whole heck of a lot for you to do. And day in and day out, not a whole heck of a lot happens unless it's something that you'd prefer Not to have happen. And so I know it can be a challenge for other fathers not to feel included and therefore not to feel empowered to help with making decisions when those decisions need to be made.
2: Laura, did your husband have to go to work? Do you think it was the same experience for you and him or you and he or different?
3: So I would say, obviously, the initial, you know, when we were separated, it was not the same experience. But since this was our only child, we both were there every day. You know, I was fortunate with my job to be able to kind of shift my schedule around so that I could start earlier in the morning and be able to leave. And what would usually happen is I would leave work at like 3.30, I'd go home, my husband and pick up my husband and we would go to the NICU and we would spend from probably like five to about seven, 7.30 every day.
2: And by the way, a hundred days is a long time. In my NICU, there's some mothers who have to go back to work. I don't want to think how difficult that must be for them.
3: You know, and the thing was, is that I talked to my work and I went back to work after the first week. I thought I wanted to leave all of my maternity leave for when the rest of my maternity leave for when my son was going to come home. And I was fortunate that my employer said that was okay. So I had 11 weeks left when he came home. And we both worked and we both went and it was a lot of it was a blur. I'll be honest, like the, trying to think about what happened those like 100 or so days, we just cut and went through the motions. And it all hit me after like he came home. And that's when I like emotionally and mentally actually dealt with what was going on, or what I had been through.
2: So that leads us into the Grams Foundation. Nick, tell us what the Grams Foundation does. You know, this audience is a pretty large audience, I think. And we have mostly, I'd say, 75% healthcare workers that subscribe to this. And many of them are in the neonatology world, because that's just my world. So I think it's really good that if you could just tell us. So you said you thought about starting it almost immediately, but what made you start it and what was the purpose of it?
0: Yeah, it was pretty simple. It was here I am, a parent, well educated. I have an, you know, an excellent job with insurance. I'm not worried about, fortunately, again, not worried about paying my bills, had a supportive family. So in so many respects, I had every circumstance going for me that I could. I didn't feel for wanting anything other than to bring my babies home. And with all that, it was completely overwhelming. But yet you have to feed yourself, which I did a lousy job of, you know, lost weight. You got to pay your bills. I figured I, I did. But it's just like, you know, you just stop worrying about anything outside
2: of the world. And Laura's nodding her head yes to yeah. the audience. And so, videos. Yeah,
0: And so I'm thinking if I am struggling and I'm like prepared for this, I'm ready. I can deal with this and yet I'm struggling to deal with it. What on earth are other parents? How are other parents? What are they doing that then if all of a sudden it is a struggle for gas money just to get to the NICU or with the complications of work? And I knew that there was no fix to this. This is the yin and the yang of technology, of modern medicine. I've benefited from it in my life. I understand this is part of that journey. But if I'm struggling, again, what must other parents be dealing with And so the emotion of it really was for that baby to have the best possible outcome is going to require parents that feel that they're empowered to be a parent, that their voice actually makes a difference. And the sooner they get that, the better off the baby is going to be. And maybe they don't get it until they're home and responsible for the baby, but maybe they get it earlier. And maybe they start to see that they can speak up because maybe they notice something. I mean, we noticed things that saved, you know, one of Reese's fingers. We noticed hydrocephalus. The neonatologist, unfortunately, said, no, it was catch-up growth. It wasn't. But again, you as a parent can notice things that the doctors and nurses might not necessarily notice. And so you can make a difference. And your voice does matter. And the sooner you can get involved, the better. And so, you know, my hope was that over Time we would develop and we would find ways to connect with parents and to be able to encourage them to care for themselves. Number one, and then you are a parent, your voice matters, and to bring that to your next conversation that you have with a doctor or a nurse or or, or family. You know, you can have to deal with family that doesn't understand why you're making decisions that you're making. And, you know, it does require a level of communication that is is perhaps unlike what many of the parents have had to deal with before
2: right there's sometimes family uh, that really doesn't understand the only people that can really understand are people that went through it and sometimes people are well-meaning and say things that really aren't very helpful
0: absolutely well-intended well-meaning and you just kind of have to Smile and say, okay, thank you for sharing and continue on. But it's amazing, you know, when I started Graham's almost what, 11, 12 years ago, it was, it is, and has always been, we don't want any parent to go through this journey alone. And what that means, it could be, you know, when I think about Graham's Foundation, it might just be reading the blog posts that our various parents share. It could be interacting with our My Pre-Me app and using that to journal your experience. My wish is that every parent had a mentor like Laura, had another parent to talk to. It's the hardest thing to get to is for a parent to be willing to open up and be vulnerable and talk to another parent. But it, it's the simplest form. It's the lowest technology and it has the greatest impact. We didn't have a mentor program when we started. That just naturally evolved and I couldn't be more thrilled at that. You know, that's one of the features of support that we offer through Graham's Foundation.
2: And Laura, what made you become a a mentor? What went through your mind and how did you get in touch with Graham's Foundation or connect with them?
3: Sure. When I was going through, when we were in the NICU, I really wanted to talk to somebody that had gone through it. um, Because I didn't know anybody, like most people, I didn't know anybody that had actually gone through anything like what we were going through. And I just found that the hospital I was at didn't really... Offer any type of support in that way. They were obviously offered us a tremendous amount of support in different ways, but they couldn't experience it like another parent would experience it. And then after we got out of the NICU, I still felt very lonely and isolated because there are issues, as Nick said, that come up for preemies that don't come up for regular children that are born at full term. And not really knowing where to go or where to look for that. I spent about a year or so just kind of going around where I live I'm in the Chicago area, trying to see if any of the other hospitals had like a support thing. Because I really wanted to give myself to somebody else, so like the knowledge that I had, so that somebody else wouldn't have to feel so lonely about it. I found Graham's Foundation and I was all excited because I sent a, uh, an online like, submission about how, what I, I really wanted to be a mentor. And I initially was told, we, we don't have any space for you right now. And I was really upset. And I was like, this is never going to happen. And then a few months later, they reached out to me again. They're like, would you like to do it? I was like, yes. Even when you're going through it, you don't even know what it is you want to ask or what you should be thinking about. But simply to know that there's another parent who made it through the NICU. And is on the other side and can say it'll be okay. It turns out okay, or even if it doesn't turn out okay, you can talk to somebody that says, "I know what it's like to make these kinds of you know choices or decisions and how hard that it is." It's just nobody can really understand what you're going through except someone that's gone through it.
2: That's a very profound statement. I think that is really important. And both of you, it always astounds me to see how people turn tragedy into something good and the endless compassion of human beings like you and and Nick who want to help others. It's one of the amazing things about uh, human beings. I think that so many people want to give back and, and I'm really grateful for organizations like Graham's Foundation and for you and Nick and all the other people involved. I live this every day. Most people don't know about it, but it is a real need for this support group finding commonality with someone that you can speak to and I can speak to preemie parents from a doctor's point of view, but I have no idea, even though I live it every day, I have no idea what it's like to have a premature baby and only you can speak about that. And so I'm so glad. Nick, what kind of things that it Grams Foundation offers for people out there that want to need help? What do you offer? And then at the end, we'll tell about how they can get in touch with you.
0: Yeah, sure. So we have what we started with is initially we have, so we have a care package program. So we have a care packages that are uniquely designed for when a parent is first in the neonatal intensive care unit. We have a care package for when they transition home, knowing that's a new journey. And then we have a care package that we're we're proud of for remembering a baby if you've lost your preemie. So we have our care package program. We have our mentor program, of course. And as Laura mentioned, we have probably two to three times as many parents that would like to be mentors, but but what we don't want is mentors that don't have mentees. And so we're always wanting to find opportunities, certainly to mentor more parents, but we're really proud of the mentor program. And then we have the industry-leading Premi mobile app, which is available in English, Spanish, in Android, and iOS it helps parents to not only journal their experience but also theres the ability to kind of track the growth of their baby, a the feeding tracker. It has a lot of really useful of all the different terms that come at you. It has a nice short summary of all the different terms, but not only the term itself but also then suggested questions to ask if. What's a blood gas? What is, you know, what's a PDA ligation? And if someone says PDA, well, why is that important? Why? What are the, you know, so again, like also to give you questions to ask so that you can, again, we want to give parents a voice. So we're really proud of that as well. And certainly just the, our sort of digital presence of the website and that includes all the, the blog posts that parents share and the, the social media presence is just it's ways to sort of be connected, I think, kind of to observe, I guess, as a parent, if you want to sort of observe and understand our voice and our intention, and and then see if it kind of makes sense then to take that next step and really connect with us directly. And, you know, in terms of following up, gramsfoundation.org, G R A H A M S, grams, and then foundation.org is the best way to connect because there, You can directly request care package. You can connect with mentors like Laura. We have a whole platform for that and links to the mobile app, et cetera.
2: And we'll put all that on the show notes so that if you're driving, as I say, you don't need to pull over to write this down and it'll be all the contact information for Laura and Nick will be available on the show notes. This is a wonderful organization. I'm pretty certain, but correct me. This is a 501c3. So donations are tax deductible and it's just a wonderful thing. I know that there is a massive need for this. You should be having a shortage of mentors, not mentees. And more people just need to hear about this. And we will do our best and I will do my best to spread the word because this is an amazing thing. And again, turning tragedy into something good and a legacy for Graham. And this is a a wonderful organization. I really support it. Guys, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. If uh, anybody wants to find more about Graham's Foundation, we'll put it on the show notes. If you enjoyed this podcast, please go ahead and hit subscribe or follow on Apple or any of your podcast platforms, or you can contact me through the OrsiniWay.com. Thank you again, both of you. This was a, a really pleasure. I can't wait for my audience to hear this.
0: Thanks, Dr. Orsini.
3: Thank you.
2: Thank
1: you, Laura. Take care, Nick. If you enjoyed this podcast, please hit the subscribe button and leave a comment and review. To contact Dr. Orsini and his team or to suggest guests for future podcasts, visit us at the Orsiniway.com.